Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello, and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today is Dorian Abbott. He is an associate professor of geophysical sciences at the University of Chicago. In his research, he uses mathematical and computational models to understand and explain fundamental problems in Earth and planetary sciences. Professor Abbott has also worked on problems related to climate, paleoclimate, the cryosphere, planetary habitability, and exoplanets. Recently, he's been focusing on terrestrial exoplanets and habitability. He has an undergraduate degree in physics and a PhD in applied math, both from Harvard University. He joins us today to discuss his recent cancellation by MIT, diversity and academic freedom, and of course, aliens. Dorian Abbott, welcome to Madison's Notes. Thanks for having me. Dorian, in in a minute, we're going to talk about a very reasonable and principled piece you wrote for Newsweek, uh, which led, as most reasonable and principled things tend to lead to today, to your cancellation. But before we do that, I want to do some table setting. Uh, As was probably evident from my pronunciation of your various research fields, I know know what about a fifth of those things are. Could, Could you say a little bit about the work you do and how you got into it? Yeah, so I grew up in Maine, and I had a grandfather who was an inventor, uh, mostly nautical instrumentation, and an uncle who was an engineer, and we would spend a lot of time talking about weather and uh, going out in their boats and the ocean and tides and things like that, and so I was interested in those sorts of problems, and I was just very good at math and physics from a young age. So that's sort of the direction I took it in. Dorian, you could have stuck to your work on the cryosphere and exoplanets, and you and I uh, would probably never be having this conversation, but you didn't and you couldn't. As you wrote in an excellent piece for Barry Weiss's newsletter, Common Sense, several years ago, you noticed that, and I'm quoting you here, an increasing number of issues and viewpoints became impossible to discuss on campus, end quote. Can you tell us about this realization and what sort of issues and viewpoints did you notice were off limits? Well, okay, so this was kind of a slow realization that I slowly started to get uncomfortable uh, talking to other people on campus Hmm. and for, you know, having lunch in sort of our public uh, lunch area. And then there was Jonathan Haidt's book about, I forget the moral, before the, the one about coddling, the one he had about, you know, the, the emotions driving the rational part. So I read that book and then I heard about Heterodox Academy and I started to say like, oh, there's something going on here. Uh, and then the issues are the issues that everybody knows about. It's the identity stuff. Anytime that something that could be connected to identity stuff came up, everyone 
was scared and didn't want to talk about it. And there were certain people who were kind of ready to accuse and yell at it, shout down people who had an opinion that they didn't agree with or presented evidence that they didn't like or didn't agree with. And so that's, that's how that played out for me. And this is at the University of Chicago. I should add that, you know, presumed to be this bastion of free speech and free expression, the home of the vaunted Chicago principles. I, you know, that's surprising. Well, those, so there's, there has to be a, a sort of society of, of free speech. It can't just be that you have the principles on the books, you know, everyone has to be bought in and have a commitment to it. And the other thing that's, that you can say about it is, well, you know, the people who disagree have a responsibility to say something and force the issue. And so for a while, I wasn't willing to do that. And now I am. And when I forced the issue, uh, former President Zimmer uh, stood behind me and refused to allow any punishment of me. So I think the university came out okay on that. Yeah. Let's talk about when you forced the issue. And this is the fall of 2020. You begin to speak out about the importance of academic freedom and merit-based evaluations. And you do so at first through a series of YouTube videos in which you argued, and again, I'm going to quote you here, you argued for the importance of treating each person as an individual worthy of dignity and respect, end quote. Could you tell us a little more about what you had to say in these videos? And could you tell us kind of what what was the last straw? When did you decide, I just need to speak out? It's time for me to do so. I mean, academic freedom, the inherent dignity of individuals, why not just leave this stuff to the philosophers? Well, they weren't getting the job done. <laughs> so, uh, but these ideas have an impact in the world. And yeah. there's a set of ideas and ideologies that's been pushed for maybe 40, 50 years now by certain people in the academy that have spread out and have started to cause problems in society more generally. And I felt that the summer of 2020 was an example of that, where it was uh, that there was just violence was permitted and encouraged and excused in a way that I wasn't comfortable with in society. Mm -hmm. And of course, the other side responded with their own uh, bad behavior in January. And everybody was too willing to excuse their own side's bad behavior. And so that was sort of for me, the last straw that this stuff was spilling out. And and the important point is if you shut down rational discourse, the only way to settle disputes is with violence. And so I felt that I couldn't remain silent about this anymore. And I felt that it it has to get sorted out in the academy because that's sort of upstream of all these other events. But what I wanted to say about the, another restatement of this equal treatment position that I've taken is that I feel that in order to have a just law system and a just morality, you have to start with the equal treatment of each person. And if you violate that, it becomes unjust. And moreover, over, there's an extreme peril to, a, to violating that principle. There's, there's a danger to society. And I think that needs to get emphasized. And I'll just read to you some of the specific points I made in those videos, which yeah. are basically restatements of, of sort of the civil rights consensus. So I'm just going to read three. Let's fight bias in science by working hard to reduce bias, not by introducing it. Let's treat each applicant for conferences, fellowships, and faculty positions as an individual worthy of dignity and respect. 
Let's treat all applicants fairly by judging them only on the basis of their ability and promise as science, scientists. So like you said, this is sort of a restatement of this civil rights consensus. I, I, I think not many people, not many reasonable people of goodwill would disagree with anything you just said there. But boy, did you find people who disagreed with it. You record these videos, these videos arguing we should treat people as inherently worthy of dignity and respect. You post these videos, and then what happens? Well, I didn't know really about Twitter at the time, and people started <laughs> writing really na nasty and mean things about me on Twitter. And I was like, what is going on? Like, wh where is this coming from? And I didn't really understand the performative as aspect. Mm. how people are, you know, will, will do something different for the benefit of everybody else than they would do if they were just person talking to you. And because at, at the time I knew these people, I was like, why, why are they saying things like that about me? Um, but yeah, it eventually snowballed into a letter of denunciation where, you know, I, it claimed things like I was, uh, I had committed an aggressive act that was harmful to uh, every woman and underrepresented person in the, in the department and things like this. And there was a list of demands, like the one you guys got at Princeton. Yeah. Some of them related to me and saying, you know, like my teaching should be restricted, my ability to advise graduate students, which is an important part of a scientific research group should be restricted. And there were some that were just kind of unrelated. I mean, one of the things I pointed out was the university policy is that nothing except merit can be uh, taken into account in hiring. And that's uh, codified in the Shills report. It's about a 50 year old document. And so one of the demands related to sort of getting rid of this Shills report, this nasty thing that says we have to do merit-based uh, you know, hiring and promotion. Like you said, President Zimmer, the president of the University of Chicago, comes to your defense here unequivocally, and no action is taken against you for this. Yeah. Uh, but what sort of reaction did you get from other professors and students? Well, you know, I mean, a range of reactions. So I got a lot of professors and students telling me, I'm terrified of speaking out. Thanks for sa saying something. <laughs> uh, don't tell anyone I told you that. Yeah, and, and there's the key, right? Don't tell anyone I told you that. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, at least one student wrote me, a number of students wrote me and said, don't tell anyone. And one student actually made up an anonymous email in order to write me. Uh, and the students, I feel a lot more sympathy with because, you know, they're getting it from these activists real bad. If they step out of line, they're going to really get it. And I'm in, I mean, that's another important point that everyone should understand. I'm a professor at the University of Chicago, a tenured professor at the University of Chicago, the top university for free speech issues. I'm in, in as safe as a position as I can be. And I'm a member of the Academic Freedom Alliance. If anyone attacks me, they're gonna defend me and there's gonna be legal counsel involved. I'm, I'm in a safe position, but for every attack on someone like me, there's a million people who don't open their mouth. And there's a thousand young students and people trying to start their career who are turned off and turned away from science and academia in, in general because of this situation. And so we should be aware of all of them. And this was all in the fall of, of 2020. Uh, the next time the mob comes for you is the fall of 2021. What were you doing in that intervening year? I mean, were you just focusing on your research? Did, did you have any more videos or anything? 
No, I was focusing on my research, but I was networking and making connections. Uh, and that ended up really helping. So I was joining organizations. So we mentioned the Academic Freedom Alliance, which right. is originally founded at Princeton, the Heterodox Academy, which I already was actually a member of. FIRE, I, I met with them. I got to know them. And ACTA are all organizations that I got involved in. We founded a group at the University of Chicago called UChicago Free as a nonpartisan group of faculty committed to academic freedom. And we have a listserv. And so internally and externally, I was networking and meeting people and getting ready for the next time because I knew I, I wasn't gonna give up these issues. It, it, if I thought it was important enough to raise these issues and I was gonna put myself on a limb, I wasn't just gonna sort of like stop when there was the tiniest bit of, of pressure the other way. And one part of that networking was I met Ivan Marinovich uh, from Stanford, and we he he hosts a seminar series called the Classical Liberalism Seminar Series that he started in around the fall of 2020 for the same reasons I spoke out. Mm. It's a um, invitation only seminar series, and only faculty are invited from across the country. It's all on Zoom. And then they have a speaker that's often controversial and it's a forum where everyone can speak freely and no one, uh, everyone can trust that the other people aren't gonna attack them. And so he and I started discussing uh, as a result of this and he, he said, we should write an op-ed that makes some of these points firmly and in public. And so that's, that was the Newsweek op-ed that came out in August. That's right. Wrote. Yeah, August, 2021, your op-ed comes out the diversity problem on campus. What is the diversity problem on campus? Yeah, so we argued, so there's something that everyone should be aware of called diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. And this is sort of a, a set of programs that have been implemented on campus. And we argued that the way they're currently implemented has at least three major problems. The first is that it violates the ethical and legal principle of equal treatment, which we discussed earlier. So most of the way these programs are being rolled out violate that principle. It's not, it's not that such a program would have to violate it, but these do. The second is that they compromise the university's mission. And what I mean by that is if you substitute other criteria other than merit for uh, hiring appointments admissions, you are inherently going to decrease uh, your, your, your academic production, your uh, production of knowledge, which is the ultimate mission of the university and which is how a university serves society more generally. And the third is that they undermine the public's trust in universities and their graduate. And that's a key point that I think is really understood on many, uh, under, uh, under understood on many university campuses is that three quarters of the public believes that appointments should occur based on merit only, even if that results in less diversity, even though they value diversity and I value diversity myself, but they still believe this. So that's, that's the normal position for most Americans. And that includes the majority of every racial group uh, so this is not a right left thing. And that's another thing in general that everyone should understand is that this is, shouldn't be viewed as a right versus left issue. It should be viewed as sort of a free society versus authoritarian issue. I think most of these things that I'm talking about. And so those were our basic points. 
And uh, we proposed an alternative framework, which we called merit, fairness, and equality. And in this framework, university applicants, both for uh, undergraduate and graduate student positions, as well as faculty positions, would be treated as individuals and evalu evaluated through a rigorous and unbiased process based on their merit and qualifications alone. And so this would involve, you know, replacing some of these DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, but also, you know, stopping doing admissions based on legacy, for example, mm -hmm. which is something that favors a different group that's not based on merit. So just saying, like, we'll set up a, a rigorous quantitative way to evaluate people, we'll put it in place, and we're just not going to worry about, well, we got this many of this category and this many of that category. Everyone had a fair chance, and we'll go with that. So that's our basic argument. Returning to that um, second point you made about what's wrong with these DEI initiatives, diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion initiatives, you say it undermines the mission of the university, of these institutions of higher learning. Could you say a little more about why that's a problem, why it's so why academic freedom is so important, not just for the professors, right? It seems self-serving sometimes, right? People are like, well, of course there's an academic freedom alliance. The professors want more freedom. Could you say a word about why it's important for our society as a whole that, yeah, that well, academic freedom is preserved? Yeah. So to borrow Jonathan Haidt's language, who's borrowing from Aristotle, there's a telos, there's a purpose of the university. And the purpose is the production of new knowledge. That's the primary purpose. And the secondary purpose is the education of the next generation of people who will produce new knowledge. So that's why we have a university. Okay, and so at least in a secular context, now even in a religious context, that's the main reason we would have a university. And you might say to produce new, new knowledge, you know, to serve God. Yeah. Uh, that might be a more appropriate definition for a Catholic university or something like that. But the University of Chicago is a secular university as most of the uh, biggest institutions in the country are, at least they uh, claim to be. And so the, the, the main reason that we're doing what we're doing is to produce new knowledge. Okay, and how does academic freedom come into that? You're gonna be limited in your ability to produce new knowledge if you can't investigate certain ideas. And so over the thousand years that universities have existed, society has found out that if you let these weird people go over there and talk about their weird ideas and you don't bug them and stop them from talking, you know, good stuff comes out of that that ends up help helping everyone else. And so that's what I mean by that. Okay, thinking, thinking again about these uh, DEI initiatives, many, maybe even most of our nation's elite institutions of higher learning discriminate against Asian Americans. Nobody really seems to care. The so-called DEI folks certainly don't. This is astonishing to me because Asian Americans are obviously a minority group in our country, and you certainly cannot look at the experience of Asian Americans in the United States and say, well, it's all sunshine and roses. What do they possibly have to complain about? So why, why, why do these people who claim to be such champions of diversity, equity, inclusion seem to care so little about discrimination against Asian Americans? Well, I don't want to speculate on that because, you know, what do I know what the real reasons are? But what I can say is that was one of the first things I pointed out in my first video that I put up on YouTube. 
and it got completely ignored. So uh, nobody wanted to deal with that issue. Nobody wanted to have a discussion about it. Nobody ever mentioned it again that I was pointing that out. And so I think that implies that there's a sense that this is a weak point uh, for the argument on the other side. They'd rather just not even try to address it. All right. So you write this op-ed and now the mob really comes for you. The article is published August 12th. Where do things go from here? Well, at first I thought, I mean, you have to understand like the mob here is, you know, like a dozen uh, active activists yeah. at MIT and some associated knuckleheads at other universities writing, you know, a few tweets and then their tweets get liked by, you know, like 200 people or something, you know, that's the mob we're talking about. Right. So I sort of found it laughable. I was like, Oh, you know, whatever. And I did make one joke about one of them that she was complaining that I had compared uh, you know, what they were up to, to authoritarianism. And I retweeted her thing and said, well, trying to get speakers canceled that you disagree with and intimidating everyone else into silence is a bizarre strategy. If your goal <laughs> is to confuse, convince people that your uh, ideology has absolutely nothing to do with totalitarianism. Yeah. Uh, but basically I thought it was just going to blow over and maybe, uh, you know, someone would be a little annoying at one of my talks or something because I was supposed to give a department colloquium man this Carlson lecture. Uh, and maybe, you know, maybe there would be a protest at my talk, but I, uh, I just didn't think it was that big a deal. I thought it would just blow over and that everyone would just ignore it. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that. You said that the mob uh, was just sort of a bunch of people on, on Twitter. How much do you know about the composition of this so-called mob, you know, what percentage were students, what percentage actually went to MIT or taught at MIT? Do you know if there was other stuff going on behind the scenes, uh, letters to the president, letters to the chair of the department at MIT, anything like that? Well, some of the people on there mentioned that, you know, the students, in quote, as if they spoke with a monolith monolithic voice, had expressed their dismay to the department chair after I had been announced. Uh, but I don't really know who most of these people were. I know a few of them, the older people. Uh, there were some faculty at other institutions who got involved in this, uh, but I don't know who most of these students were. I've never met them. I don't know anything about them. What was the timeline? So as you mentioned, MIT invites you to deliver this, as I understand it, very prestigious uh, lecture at MIT, when did they invite you to do this? And then when did they let you know, I'm sorry, we're not going to let you give this lecture anymore? Originally they had invited me before COVID. It got canceled because of COVID. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and then they re-invited me this summer and confirmed this summer, I guess maybe around July, I don't remember exactly. And then uh, I think the proximate trigger for the attacks was that so it was put up on the website in the summer. And I think the proximate trigger for the attacks was that they announced it internally on an internal email on a listserv, but I don't know that for sure because it was on the website and people just didn't know about it, I guess. No one checked that website. And then it must've gotten announced internally. And that was, that was I think September 22nd, I think I wrote, wrote that down. And then it was 
six days later that the chair emailed me and asked to have a conversation. And two days after that, he talked to me and told me they were canceling it. Gosh. And, and what was your reaction when he told you they were canceling it? Well, I was surprised. I, I knew that he wanted to talk about the fact that there was this, you know, Twitter mob going on, but I didn't expect him to cancel the lecture. I thought it would just be like, well, we've got this issue and, you know, we're going to take care of it. I know they've been abusing you online, but we're, uh, you know, we're not going to let that influence. We're not going to let that influence our academic decisions. We're going to go ahead with the lecture and we'll get our students under control kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know. I guess I was just kind of sad. What sort of reaction did you get from colleagues at Chicago or, or peers at MIT? Was it sort of the same, some muffled uh, emails of support? Yeah, I wouldn't say muffled emails of support necessarily. The people who emailed me were not muffled. They said, you know, I, I disagree with that decision. There were a number of people, but it wasn't like everybody did. It was, you know, yeah. a small number a few colleagues at each places. And then in this U Chicago free, there was a more, there's been a more lively discussion and people are a little more upset about what happened because these are, this is a group assembled specifically around these issues. The hard sciences have, have been thought to be somewhat insulated from some of this woke cancel culture and these threats to academic freedom. That was obviously not true in your case. And on this podcast, the eminent mathematician Sergio Kleinerman has also raised concerns about academic freedom in STEM. So what is the state of academic freedom in the hard sciences? And, and what are the implications of the professors and students of these disciplines in particular, not being able to speak freely, think freely, and research freely? The state of academic freedom in the hard sciences is now basically as bad as any other uh, part of the academy. Hmm. So that's the state. Uh, part of the issue is for 20, 30 years, there's been certain perspectives being taught in, uh, in undergraduate education. For people in the hard sciences, it would come in the core courses, courses they took on history. Well, they're not learning history. They're learning a social activist version of history. Yeah. And that is propagated through so that we now have a lot of grads, not all of them. There's plenty of good people, young people. Uh, we have a lot of grad students, postdocs, and uh, even young faculty who are versed in this tradition and this orthodoxy and willing to try to enforce it on everyone else. And so what are the implications for society? I mean, it's not hard to guess, right? Like, suppose you want to understand anything that intersects with identity issues, okay? You're going to have a terrible time studying that openly. Look at what happened to someone like Peter Archidiakono. I don't know if you've talked to him on this podcast down at Duke, an economist at Duke who's studied uh, uh, sort of affirmative action in a way, in sort of a rational way, divorced from uh, ideological assumptions. And in other fields where you have teachers, researchers, selected based in part on criteria that are not strictly merit-based, then the greater impact is just less effective science is gonna get done. Which has, of course, I mean, severe implications, I would think, 
to our nation. I mean, even to our national security. You, you have a promising young nuclear physicist, and uh, he can't he can't get his PhD or he can't get a job after he finishes his thesis because, well, you know, he's on the wrong side of all this diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff. And yet, I would imagine our adversaries. I would imagine that's probably not a problem that Chinese uh, students are facing at the you know universities uh, in China. Not today. They learned their lesson. So they had yeah. this problem 50 years ago. They had something called the cultural Re- revolution right. where, you know, you were, people were going around they, I mean, it was, it was worse. Ours has been much softer so far, but people were getting thrown in jail and in prison camps for being from too white a family. White in this context is political, not racial, yeah. not a red enough family to, uh, you know, bourgeois of a family having parents and grandparents who are bankers or things like that. Uh, and students were being admitted uh, based on being from a red family rather than being academically prepared and uh, at the highest level of intelligence. But they have switched and now they do their selection based on a big test. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, there's a couple other ways to get in. Like if, if you want to go to Peking University, Beida is the top university in China. It's the Harvard of China. And you can get in there based on the test, but you can also get in if you do really well on the physics Olympiad. You know, there's a couple other ways you can get in, but it's all based on these merit criteria. And for example, I've, I have a Chinese colleague, Jun Yang, and actually in my, in my talk at the Madison program, I'm going to be bringing up work that we've done together. And he's an excellent example of how their merit system works. He grew up in a rural area uh, uh, in a family of poor rice farmers. He did really well on these tests and he was identified and brought into Peking University, Beida, and was worked his butt off, was extremely successful, did his PhD at University of Toronto, postdoc at University of Chicago with me. And then he went back to Peking University, joined the faculty, and he's had a huge influence on young people there. He's mentored dozens of students already. He's only in his mid-30s. And he's, you know, really advancing science in our field and developing it in China. And so that's that's an example of how this should work and how China has learned a lesson from going through a, a politicized phase of science and has, you know, gotten out of it as, as much as it's possible. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can learn our lesson before we go too far down that road. I'm quoting you here, and this is taken from that that wonderful piece uh, you wrote in Barry White's newsletter, and all listeners can find a link to that in the show notes, and I encourage everyone uh, to read it. And this is a a little long, but I think it's so powerful that I wanted to be sure to, to read this whole portion. And you write, quote, this issue is especially important to me because my wife and I are expecting our first child in January, and congratulations. We all need to decide what type of country we want our children to grow up in. Do we want a culture of fear and repression in which a small number of ideologues exert their power and cultural dominance to silence anyone who disagrees with them? Or do we want our children to enjoy truth-seeking discourse consisting of good-natured exchanges that are ultimately grounded in a spirit of epistemic humility? If you want the latter, it's time to stand up and say so. It's time to say no to the mob, no to the cancellations, and it's time to be forthright about your true opinions. This is not a partisan issue. Anyone who is interested in the pursuit of truth and in promoting a healthy and functioning society 
has a stake in this debate. Speaking out now may seem risky, but the cost of remaining silent is far steeper, end quote. And that's really, really wonderful, uh, haunting, but I think an important call to action. So thinking about the action we can take, what advice do you have for people, students, teachers, parents, what have you, who want to confront this rising totalitarianism and stop it before it's too late? Yeah, so I guess one thing I should say is we should start with administrators. So you can see when President Zimmer at UChicago just said no, yeah. the whole thing just deflated. It was like a, a balloon. He just popped it and it was gone. And it reminds me of Kipling's poem about the Dane Geld. Do you know this poem? No, I don't. It, so the Danes, you know, would for a period, I think around the eighth century, were invading England and they would demand the Dane Geld. They would demand payments in order to not invade and rape and pillage and whatever else. And uh, so the English paid this demand, but they were weakened. And this is essentially a, a Dane Geld is being extorted here. And so the administrator has to just say, no, we don't pay the Danegeld. And that will sort of end this whole thing. There's not, there's not much backing up these threats. So I would start with the administrators. And then for faculty, I think you got to try to network and, uh, and collaborate with others, talk to the AFA, FIRE, Heterodox Academy, ACTA, these organizations I mentioned. And that's gonna help if you get attacked. And the other thing is in advance, if you can get the Chicago principles adopted, which are yeah. sort of the gold standard for academic freedom on your, on your campus, that's gonna really help. One thing that is often overlooked, the University of Chicago has the Chicago principles, which is great. We have the Shills report on merit-based hiring and uh, promotions, but we also have something called the Calvin report. And the Calvin report insists strictly on political neutrality of the university. So uh, the university president, the provost, the deans, the department chairs are not supposed to make official statements on political issues. Now, that was violated a lot last summer, but that's at least our idea. And getting something like that adopting at your university can really help. For students, I think avoid getting in a social media mobbing or signing letters of denunciation. So those can feel really good when you do it, but you are destroying society. So <laughs> don't do it. And the other thing is encourage your friends. So uh, get, there was a guy who wrote for Barry Weiss's, a young black student uh, whose parents are Haitian. And he wrote about how he's been inoculated from being woke mm. uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago in Barry Weiss's Substack. And I spoke to him and I said, you know, what's, What's what have your experiences been? Have people been attacking you? And he said, no, you know, my friends all supported me, even the ones who don't disagree with me. And I think that's the right attitude. More people should just say, if you if your friend has a dissenting viewpoint, encourage them to speak out. Don't just say, you know, I'm going to write you off and attack you and never talk to you again if we disagree on some yeah. political issue. For parents, I think what you can do is take into account the university's commitment to academic freedom when you help your child decide which school to attend. And there's a great easy way to do that, which is the FIRE, Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, free speech rankings, where University of Chicago used to be number one and now we've slipped to number two, but we're still doing okay. But look at those, don't just look at the other rankings of what the best university is. Try to think of a place where your child can 
go to grow, learn, uh, understand the world, not to be indoctrinated into a narrow ideological viewpoint. Now, getting broader to the more broader public, for alumni donors, you have power. Uh, you can stop giving money. So you can tell, you can form a group that collectively stops giving money. That's going to get deans and presidents' attention. And you can say, you can write a letter to them as a group and say, look, you know, we want the Chicago principles adopted. We want uh, political neutrality reflected. And if it's not, we're not going to give any more money. Yeah. The trustees, you can you appoint the administrators. So if they don't uphold ap academic freedom, just replace them. That's what I would recommend. Lawmakers, what I would, they have a similar role as, I guess most uh, public institutions also have trustees, but the lawmakers have some oversight. So you can try to influence through that role, but also I, I would try to make sure that public funding, which the public is uh, paid for through tax money, for research is uh, has stipulations requiring academic freedom and political neutrality. Now, I'm not a lawyer and I don't know how that exactly would work out, but that's the sort of thing that you could try to work towards. And just every, every citizen out there, you can talk to your lawmaker and say, you know, we pay for this research. We don't want research that's affected by ideology. Yeah. We don't want uh, Lysenkoism and we don't want, uh, we want our scientists to be chosen based on their merit as scientists and not on other criteria because we're the ones paying for it. At the beginning of the podcast, I, I promised listeners that we would discuss your, your cancellation by MIT, diversity and academic freedom, and aliens. And many of our listeners are sitting here wondering, where are the aliens? So let's talk about aliens. On October 21st at 4.30 p.m. Eastern, we at Princeton University's James Madison program will host you live on Zoom to deliver what would have been your Carlson lecture at MIT on climate and the potential for life on other planets. So here's the question. Do aliens exist? And if so, where are they? Yeah, first of all, you know, thanks to Professor George for setting up that lecture. I'm super excited and I hope uh, many of the people listening will attend. So are there aliens? We don't know. I mean, that's this is a topic of current scientific research, uh, something that I participated in. So my particular contribution has been helping to define the types of planets that are the most promising to look for, for signs of life. Mm. Uh, but we don't know if we're going to find any life. We, we hopefully are going to learn more soon. So we've got the James Webb Space Telescope, which is supposed to be launched this fall if everything goes according to plan. And that's going to be able to look at certain types of planets. And I can explain that in my lecture, I will explain that in my lecture. They are not the exact type of planets that are like Earth. So they're sort of Earth-ish planets orbiting different types of stars that make it easier for this instrument to make a measurement. Hmm. Hopefully by the 40s or 50s, we'll have a much bigger, better, badder instrument that will be able to look at an Earth 2.0, a really Earth-like planet around an Earth-like star. And if by the time those missions are over, we haven't detected any signs of life, that's going to start to indicate that life is very, very rare. Uh, but you, you know, we can't rule it out. It'll just be, it, it's going to allow us to put constraints on how rare it is. 
but everyone should be aware that aliens in this context, extraterrestrials, that could be microbes. And we would just detect uh, some alteration of the atmosphere that we think could not have occurred abiotically. And it could be, you know, some intelligent species that sends a signal to us. Yeah. So there's sort of a range of possibilities. Should we be looking for extraterrestrial life? I mean, it, it's just done in the spirit of discovery, scientific inquiry. What's the end goal, you think? Well, this, you know, this type of scientific research is not about, you know, curing cancer or developing a new vaccine. This is blue sky research. Yeah. Should we do it? I mean, you've got a, that's a real philosophical question. I mean, you know, what, what philosophical framework do you want to operate in to try to answer that question? And then I'll try to answer it. Um, I think no matter what framework I choose, we might not be able to answer it in time. But, but I guess what I'm curious about is what the implications are if we do, in fact, uh, find life, intelligent life on another planet. What are the implications I don't know if I can answer that question. I don't think anyone can answer that question. We're going to have to see what happens. But, I, you know, I feel like it's likely that it would have a large impact on philosophy, our understanding of our place in the universe. Uh, there would be a lot of theology involved, you know, would, uh, should Jesuits be trying to convert the aliens? You know, those <laughs> sorts of questions. Right. Uh, but I'm not the right person to answer that. I'm a nerd, you know, <laughs> I, I do my business. Well, we're all looking forward to hearing you October 21st at 4.30 p.m. Eastern. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and mention, I don't think I'm giving away any secrets here. We have already had more than 2,000 people register for the event. So all listeners should uh, rush out there, go ahead and register. You can find a link to do so in the show notes. Dorian, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on Madison's Notes and keep fighting the good fight. Thanks. It was a great pleasure. And I'm a listener of your show. And I think it's excellent. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Dorian. There you have it, Madisonians. Dorian Abbott on MIT's capitulation to the Twitter mob, academic freedom and diversity, and aliens. As I mentioned, you can find a link to the piece Dorian wrote for Barry Weiss's newsletter in the show notes. I highly recommend you read it. Dorian has not only shown impressive courage throughout this entire episode, he's also done a wonderful job making the case for academic freedom and for merit-based evaluations, as you just heard. Don't forget to register for Dorian's lecture at the James Madison program, which again will be at 4.30 p.m. Eastern on October 21st. There's a link for that in the show notes as well. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Thanks so much for joining us, and I hope to have you back with us next time here on Madison's Notes.